Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. You know, growing up, I was raised with this notion of, of winning meant a lot, right? Winning was important. You know, I, I was raised in a sports-minded household. Uh, my dad was, was a wrestling coach, and he, he was consumed by sports for a majority of his life, all of his adult life. Um, sports were, were big for him, and then that got translated to me and my brother as well. And with that came this, this competitiveness, and I don't know how much of that is just natural within me and how much of that was bred into me through my upbringing. But at the same time, it was like I wanted to, I wanted to achieve success. I wanted to win in pretty much every area of my life. And that is something that I still have in, inside of me this winning spirit, this winning drive. Um, but being so centered on, on sports, you know, I, I would hear these quotes from athletes and from coaches and, and things that really drove this mindset of you have to achieve the pinnacle of whatever you're doing or you have failed, right? You know, Vince Lombardi, football coach for a long time, won multiple world championships, won the first two Super Bowls after the NFL and AFL merged together. Uh, and then the Super Bowl trophy itself is named after Vince Lombardi. He's quoted a couple different times, really focusing on this winning mentality. One of his quotes said, winning is not a sometimes thing, it's an all the time thing. And later he was quoted saying, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Right? His whole life was consumed of this. If he doesn't win, then he has failed. George Steinbrenner uh, for the Yankees, again, oversaw multiple world championships with the Yankees. He went even further. He said winning is the most important thing in his life after breathing. So imagine how he felt all of those years the Yankees didn't win a world championship, <laughs> right? And there were quite a few of them. Imagine how Vince Lombardi felt when he lost a game. It was probably absolutely crushing. And you know, for a lot of my upbringing, I would feel that way too. If I didn't win a wrestling match or if I didn't win a tournament, and even to the point where um, state finals my senior year, I lose and I walk off the mat and the first thing I say is, I'm sorry, Dad. And he's my coach in the corner. I felt that I had failed him because I didn't win the championship because that was ingrained and he didn't necessarily intend to put that on me right I'm not I'm not blaming anybody else this is something that I decided was going to be a mentality that I carried and then what happens is is it carries over into other areas of our life right not all of us are sports minded but you know we want to win we want to be successful in our careers in parenting as a spouse, as friends, whatever, and then when we mess up, we feel like an absolute failure. If we don't get the promotion, we feel like a failure. If we're not making X amount of dollars, we feel like a failure. Because in our mind, we've been taught 
that winning is the most important thing next to breathing, and that winning is everything. And we may not come out and say that we believe that, but just take a a deep look at your life and the motivations that you have and, and reflect on whether or not that is something that is ingrained in you. And then what that creates to some level is a perfectionist mentality, and that is something that I have battled with, right? And having a hard time to admit when we fail or not wanting somebody to point out flaws or whatever the case may be, instead of wanting to grow and instead of wanting to fix those things and to really being at peace with who we are in Jesus, we're like, man, I messed up again. I failed again. And then that leads us to a point where when we don't achieve perfection, which is every single day, right? When we don't achieve perfection in that area, we feel like we have failed. So tonight, I want to look at really two phrases that we've started to include in our household. One of them has been around for a while, and the other one has been more of a recent phrase that we're trying to create these family mottos, you know, and they they, they really try to get us to come together and grow as a family, grow individually, and so that our kids understand that it's not just these lessons that they need to learn, but their parents are growing right alongside of them. The first phrase I want to focus on is, and this is something we ask our kids a lot, it's, why do you do the things that you do? Right? And sometimes it comes across a little snarky and sarcastic. Why do you do the things that you do? But really, no, it's like, stop and think about why did you just do that? Why are you behaving this way? Why are you saying the things that you're saying? Why are you treating your sister or brother that way? Why are you feeling this way? But really tonight, what I want to focus on is why are you getting out of the bed? Why, why are you guys getting out of bed in the morning? Why do you do the things that you do the first thing in the morning? Why do you consume your days with the things that you do? You know, think about what is causing us to strive. You know, the whole book of Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon is reflecting on this idea of vanity, vanity, all things are vanity and striving, you know, for, for nothing, right? Because we're consumed with all of this stuff, and this is the guy that reached the pinnacle in so many areas of his, of his life, and he's like, it's all vanity. And to think about what is driving us in life, because oftentimes when we wake up to when we go to sleep, it feels like we are striving for things. And, and is it ambition, Do you have ambition inside you? Is that what driving you to do certain things? Or have you set goals in your life? Is that what is driving you to do the things that you do? Or do you just simply want to win in every area of your life? You know, what what do we strive for, too? You know, part of that is, are we trying to achieve a certain amount of income? Are we trying to achieve a certain amount of things? Are we trying to establish a certain level of comfort for ourselves and for our family? Are we trying to provide security so that we don't have to depend on God or anybody else? Are we trying to achieve a title in the workplace or something else? Is that what we're achieving or trying to achieve? Is that what consider? You know, I think God answers for us what we should be striving for why we should be striving, 
why we should do the things that we do. We're going to go all over the Bible tonight. We're going to read a lot of the Bible. Hope you guys are down with that. Um, We're going to start out, let's go to Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. I'll be reading out of the NASB. If you guys have a different one, um, might be phrased a little bit different. It's usually pretty similar to like the ESV. Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2 say, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is in vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. You know, we should, everything we do should be according to a calling that the Lord has put on our lives, right? The Lord is the one who provides. The Lord is the one who is directing us in the work. The Lord is the one who placed us here. And if you feel like that's not the case, like if we're in this job because it gives us the highest level of income, maybe that's not where the Lord wants us to be. Or Maybe we're, we're doing this over here because it provides us security or because there's a title over here that we want to get, but it's not where the Lord wants us to be. Because all that income disappears, right? Eventually, it disappears, and we can't take it with us. So unless the Lord is doing it, unless the Lord is directing it, and that is the first thing we can do, am I doing the things that I'm doing because the Lord is with me doing these things and because the Lord has called me into doing these things or not? Let's hop over to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 17 here, and, and he talks about it in a couple other places too, and the same kind of idea, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says, whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. How many times a day can you stop yourself and say, well, I didn't say that because I wanted to glorify Jesus, or I didn't do that because I wanted to do it. To Jesus. I mean, imagine everything that you do in the day or say in the day, you're doing it directly to Jesus or saying it directly to Jesus. And imagine how that might change your perception on things. Picture Jesus in your spouse. Picture Jesus in your children and your coworkers. And like, every time I speak to these people, every time I interact with these people, I am interacting with Jesus himself. Man, how that would transform the way I treat my wife and kids and my friends. I shortchange the people in my lives. How about you? Let's hop over to Romans 12 now. Romans 12, Romans 12 chapter, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
I mean, we got to think about the things that we're doing. How much of it is sacrificial? Or how much of it is for our own personal gain? Right? When it, just imagine God asking you the question, why are you doing what you're doing? Are you sacrificing for others and for my sake? Or are you just sacrificing time to benefit yourself? And then we'll hop over to Galatians chapter 2. I told you we're going all over the place. This is one of my favorite verses, even though I fail miserably so often to live this out. But Paul, Paul talking here about his position, his position in this world now that he is a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. This is his status as a human being here on earth. And he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And if, I, I know it's a struggle, it's such a big struggle to actually go through a day, just one day, not thinking about yourself. I, I don't think I've ever done it. But here Paul is saying, you don't exist anymore. I don't exist anymore. The person that we are exists in Christ. We are his temples, right? The Holy Spirit. We are meant to be used by him to achieve what he wants to achieve through us in this life. So when we say, why do I do the things that I do if it's not to achieve his glory, then what is it for? What is it for? You know, Oswald Chambers says that it's a humbling experience to remember that every time we knock on God's door, we knock right along with the crucified thief. We are in the same position. And when we start seeing ourselves and the dependency that we have and the fact that we too deserve to hang on a cross and that we too deserve the punishment and that we too need to end and start living our life through Christ, then we are not going to live out the life that God has called us to until we get to that point. We're, we're going to fail at answering the question, why do we do the things that we do? Is all going to be messed up unless we can get to that point where we no longer exist, but Christ exists in us. So the second thing I want to look at here is God's response to greatness. Because that's what the world tells us, right? And that's what I just got done sharing. It's like I grew up with this notion that I need to achieve greatness in areas of my life. But we'll see how God addressed this area of greatness. And we're going to hop around through a few of the Gospels. If you guys want to start out in Matthew chapter 19, that'll be the first one that we look at. And, you know, we have, we can easily kind of scoff at this from, you know, our, our place and time and think back and like easily point a finger at these people like, oh, this is so petty and ridiculous, but then we lied to ourselves because we would have been doing the same exact thing. 
So here, there were several points in time when the disciples were like arguing with themselves about who was what? The greatest, right? Who's the greatest disciple? They can spend all of this time, every waking moment with Jesus, seeing him do these amazing things, and still they go back to that point where like, I wonder if I'm the greatest disciple, but I'm the best follower of Jesus. And that just sounds crazy, right? But how many of us do the same thing? How many of us, having to get a little uncomfortable, have looked around and be like, I'm a better follower of Jesus than that person. I know y'all have looked at me and thought that, but. All right, so looking at verses 27 through 30. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Speaking about afterwards, a reward. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit it eternal life, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first as disciples. We're pretty awesome disciples, so we better be getting some good stuff, right? And we kind of take that into how we follow Jesus sometimes too, like, Man, I wonder what my reward's going to be here. I wonder what my blessings are going to be in life because I'm faithfully following Jesus. But here again, Jesus is saying, the first will be last and the last will be first. It's like a big pride check here for Peter and the other disciples. Let's hop over to Matthew 20, down to verses 20 through 28. So Jesus will go on talking about laborers in the vineyard and um, people being brought in and um, then talk a little bit more about death and his death and resurrection. And then again, here comes the mother, because we know sometimes moms can step in for their kids and start asking questions too and want to promote them, their children and stuff. And I always think this is kind of funny, but then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request to him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, <laughs> command, <laughs> command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said, my cup, you shall drink. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those who have already been prepared by my Father. And we know that his glory was on the cross. And the right and the left were already designated. And then hearing this, the ten became indignant with the other two brothers. But Jesus called, called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, my kids 
like to play with their dolls and stuff. And they there's this one time they had a servant because they had these um, this princess and the castle and stuff. And they had this servant. I was like, oh, that's the best character. And they just look at me like, what? It's like, yeah, I'll play with the servant. Let me be the servant. And they're like, why? So then, you know, I start talking about this with them, tried to use it as a preachable moment with, at that point, a, a five and a three-year-old. And it's like, but who knows? Maybe they got some of it. Maybe not. It was a good reminder for me, though. Anyways, so here again, Jesus is putting them in check. Like, stop competing with each other. The first will be last and the last will be first. Look at what I am doing. Look at what I am going to do. I did not come to be served, but I came to serve. I came to give my life. Here again, he's saying exactly what Paul would say later. He's not asking us to do anything that he didn't do first. Give your life away. Let's hop over to Luke chapter 9. And we're going to be towards the end of it. We're going to look at verses 46 through 48. Again, an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus knowing that they were thinking in their hearts, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, him who sent will receive him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. It's like he has to keep reining them in and checking their ambition and checking their desire to be the, the greatest. And then again, later in Luke, in chapter 22, verse 24. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which of them was regarded to be the greatest. Like when you get slapped in the face enough times, like you stop asking this question and arguing this question, and you know Jesus is already can read your thoughts. And what had just happened? The Lord's Supper, right? Right after the Lord's Supper, they're like going to head to the garden the last night of Jesus' life, and they start arguing about which one is the greatest. And you know, we would be caught up right in that same conversation. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader, like the servant. And this is a reminder, and it kind of a similar, we have to be reminded of this all of the time. All of the time. So the second phrase that we've tried to incorporate into our household is, be last. Be last. And just let that sit with you for a minute. Every time the kids are arguing, I look at them both and say, be last. And you know what usually happens? Is one says, yeah, be last. Tells the other one that. No, 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 you too. <laughs> so we wrote them down on sticky notes and put them around in our, our house and as good reminders of just, just be last. And there are so many opportunities, folks, where this comes up for myself, for my wife, for our kids, where we check ourselves to be last. Stop striving to be the best and be last. And that is so contrary to what our world is telling us, right? 
but imagine how much the people in your life would be, would be blessed by you if you put yourself last. If you served others the way that Christ did. And I know that there are people out there that are like, yeah, be last except to this point. Be last except to this point. Let's talk about Jesus being last to a particular point. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Is there a limit on when you should be last? When I should be last? To what extent should this mentality carry over? Now keep in mind what Paul said, he no longer exists. You no longer exist. I no longer exist. It should not be a problem to be last, right? If we no longer exist. But here in Philippians chapter 2, I'm just going to read verses 3 through 8 says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That already strikes down a bunch of things that we did today, right? But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. You don't have to get ahead. You don't have to prove yourself right. You don't have to win an argument. You don't have to do this to elevate yourself, you can be last. Because other people, you can regard as more important than yourself. And this is not talking about like self-defamation where you're just like, oh, I'm a horrible person, I shouldn't exist, where you slip into this depression. It's like, no, you start to see yourself in the eyes of Jesus as a vessel being used by Jesus. And if Jesus, as we're gonna read, can step out of heaven you can let somebody else win an argument. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Is there an extent to which we should be last? Is there a limitation? If Christ is our example, is there a limitation to how we should serve people? Is there a limitation to where we should put the needs of others first? I think the answer is no. And I think Christ gave that as a perfect example of how we, need our, how we need to live our lives. You look at a couple key phrases here. He humbled himself. And that is exactly what we need to do every day in order to be last, in order to glorify Jesus, in order to live a life of greatness by being a servant. In order to live a life that wins, we have to be willing to lose even our very lives. You know, you think of other people in the Bible and examples. Think about a story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan. You think about the things that he, he was doing and he had to stop his life, put it on hold to stop and take care of this person. Who knows what appointments he missed? Who knows 
what deal maybe didn't get done because he put the needs of this injured man first. And then what he did there is he took him and he gave money and he said, whatever else you need, I will pay it. He put his wealth on the line. He put his time on the line. He put his interests on the line for somebody else. Forgot I had a quote here real quick from Dr. King. He says, the first question which the priest and the Levite asked in the Good Samaritan story is, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Good Samaritan reversed the question, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Think about Ruth. Think about how she forfeited her future and put it on the back seat to take care of Naomi and to follow Naomi and to provide for Naomi. She gave her life to take care of Naomi. Think about Moses and Aaron living, leaving a life of comfort and safety and security to go confront the most powerful man in the world and say, you have to let go all, almost all of your labor force. Right? And to put themselves in that position where they very easily could have died. Think about the early church. Think about in Acts where it talks about they sold their possessions to provide for the needs of other people. I mean, it's all about sacrifice because our example made the ultimate sacrifice. Charles Spurgeon said, when humility is deepened, love will be quickened. The only way we're going to love like Jesus is when we come to an end of ourselves and when we're last. When you guys are taking communion, I just encourage you to remember our Savior who's God in the flesh, chose to be last, to heal our hearts, to set us free, to ransom us and rescue us. And guys, I just ask you, as I will be thinking about it, to just let that change our hearts so that we too can be last, so that we can be emptied, so that we can be humble and we can be last. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up my heart.